Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, I'm here with Marcus Goodfellow, Goodfellow Family Sellers here in McMinnville. Uh, it's July 10th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Marcus. We really appreciate this. Uh, let's start by asking you, uh, why wine? Uh, primarily, I'm not really why wine. I think I'm why Oregon. Okay. If I, I grew up over by Silverton on the east side of the valley, mm-hmm. moved to Los Angeles to go to college ostensibly, caught the wine bug from a friend down there. And when I moved back up here, really got into looking at Oregon wine. I was working in restaurants, uh, moved further into restaurants, working with Philippe Boulot at the Heathman, was running the list there, and really had a deep appreciation for what I was seeing from the Oregon industry. I had a real belief in the quality of the wines that were being produced, and a deep desire to move back out into the country uh, to get back into something that was agricultural but still would keep me connected to the restaurants. Mm-hmm. Wine. Also, I just at that point was old enough to realize that every job is a grind at some point, so you need something that you can sort of re-energize yourself with. Uh, And I think the sort of magic of combining Pinot Noir with the place of Oregon uh, really, to me, was a fascinating opportunity and one that I felt would keep me engaged, which has held true. And I would honestly say I would expand that to I feel that like white wines and other varietals are equally as engaging up here now. It's not just Pinot, but when I started out, that was certainly the focus. You know. So tell me about how you, you talked about enjoying Oregon wines while you're working in restaurants. Tell me about kind of your introduction to them, what you, what you had first, uh, what it was about them that kind of spoke to you early on. I think the first couple of things that I had were like the 92 Elk Cove La Boheme, had the 85 Adams that I think Russ Rainey, who used to, who was the founder of Evesham Wood, produced. Uh, yeah, I ran into John Paul for working in restaurants, and he's about as charismatic as you get. So <laughs> John's wines were great, but John was really a big hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, again, with wine, Kristen was a major sort of vault for me into the concept of of what I thought great wine in Oregon could really be. Uh, I loved Steve's wines. I also really liked his approach, uh, just the way that he handled himself as well. And then I had the opportunity to taste some of their older wines uh, with alongside Burgundy where I felt that they were every bit as interesting, complex, and certainly of the same quality. and that was really, for me, it also set the bar very high. So it made it something where I felt that part of my job was to come in and, and learn my craft part of it. I was certainly really attracted, I guess, by those early industry veterans. I really feel across the board that we were very lucky with the people that started the industry. Um, that, I think, uh, combined with what they were trying to do, I think was very attractive to me as an Oregonian, to be able to look at a place that was historically as storied and as the, you know, with the quality and the history that Burgundy had and realize that I do feel that that's very achievable here. Mm-hmm. So you got the kind, kind of got the bug, you, you're moving back to Oregon. Tell me about what happens next, how you kind of dip your toe in as far as making wine. Uh, I was uh, here and working at the Heathman, which, you okay. know, it was a, it's a very good place to meet winemakers because <laughs> it's a, we had uh, the first James Beard award-winning chef in Portland. We had, uh, uh, you know, a very high quality of food and wine. And also we were right next to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Memorial Hall, so we did quite a bit of volume. 
Uh, it's a really remarkable and unique space. Uh, that, I think, allowed me to develop relationships with a number of the local winemakers because people were still selling their own wines, uh, particularly Russ Rainey at Yves Chamwood, John at Cameron, mm -hmm. and then most importantly, Amy Wesselman and David Autry at Westry. Mm -hmm. uh, they, uh, Dave and I played recreational soccer along with Amy, um, and we had it. I just really, Dave and I have a, a very similar approach and thought process, I think, and belief in what wine should be. Um, we both occasionally probably run our mouths when we shouldn't. Um, <laughs> I don't think he would be offended by me saying that. Uh, the, the friendship that we had there was fantastic. I was noodling around the concept of producing some home wine, and Dave told me not to do that. He simply said that commercial volumes are so different from what you do at home that you don't learn anything. Mm -hmm. He put the probably second most important piece of advice I've ever gotten into my ear, which was that you have one opportunity per year to do this, to learn and to grow as a winemaker, and that every vintage you miss is a loss that was significant percentage of your career. Mm -hmm. uh, so he encouraged me without any prior practice to simply get some fruit. They had uh, had a little bit of space open up in their winery that summer. It was sort of a very, I tell people all the time, I'm the luckiest guy in the industry. Like things have fallen into place for me over the years in a way that I don't know they do for everybody, but certainly that was a, a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. We made, uh, a friend of mine helped me out, we made 2.9 tons wound up being 189 cases of Pinot Noir. The first vintage was 2002, so it was a sort of optimal, um, it was a pretty easy vintage. Mm -hmm. Another friend of mine, Willie Lund, who was at Argyle for a while, used to say that the village idiot could make good red wine, and I'd like to say that in 2002, I proved him right. <laughs> so. so then, where from there, uh, kind of continue on your journey for us through, through uh, making wine? We did 189 cases the first year, bumped up to 350 the second. Um, my first introduction to vineyard was in 1994. I was out at Whistling Ridge. They had just planted in 91 alongside the same time that Mike Etzel planted the Beaufort Vineyard. Uh, and uh, I met them through a mutual friend, really neat people, and helped them hedge a couple of times during the growing season, and then uh, helped them pick their first, second harvest, sorry, in 94. Mm -hmm. um, I went back to Patricia, who's a, a certainly, a, she'd be someone you should get an interview with. Uh, I went back to Patricia to ask her about getting some fruit in 2002, and she looked at me when she said, you're going to make some wine? I said, yeah, that's what, that's what my plan is. And she said, great, show me how it turns out. <laughs> and I was like, okay, um, I get it. And then in 2004, uh, we had showed her some wine and it was okay. So they decided that they would sell me one and a half tons of fruit that year, see how it worked out. Uh, the next year they sold me two and a half tons of fruit. The year after that, we started making wine for them and splitting two blocks basically with a metage contract. Um, mm -hmm. At this point, it's a 15-acre vineyard that we get all of the fruit from. I was also at that point working with the Gladhearts at Winters Hill, who really neat people that uh, made a space for, you know, I mean, I, the, when I first was asking people for fruit, it was very different. You know, 2002, things were, it was a little tighter market, I would say, in terms of fruit, and the Gladhearts were kind enough to uh, take a risk on our process. The same was true for Jimmy Brooks over at Mumtazi, who's another influence for sure. Mm -hmm. um, 
As we grew at Whistling Ridge, we also, I tasted, I moved my production over to Adia with Diane and Dean Fisher. And they had a co-op place, they were making a little bit of fruit for the Durant family, or a little bit of wine. And tasting some of their 2005 Pinot Noir out of barrel, I decided that I had to have some of that fruit as well. <laughs> so I bugged Ken Durant for six years, or four years, sorry, and from 2006 to 2010. In 2010, they finally said, you know, they'd been hearing some nice things about the wines. Uh, they had a two-acre block that had opened up and asked if we wanted it. So we went over, and that's how really the Durants became sort of a, a staple for us. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic vineyard, certainly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. uh, we added Furcrest, which is kind of a long relationship, and it's a really unique vineyard that's down in the coastal foothills. And then uh, kind of have always done whites, but really started doing it much more seriously with some of the aromatic varietals in 2008 and it's about 40 percent of production right now but half of that is all or a little more than half of that is chardonnay so obviously chardonnay is something that i think most of us kind of always felt should do really well here mm -hmm. but i think for me personally for a long time i knew that amy and david made good chardonnay i knew there were a couple around the valley there was also a lot that were not terribly good mm -hmm. and then there was brick house and cameron where you knew that they knew how to make chardonnay so mm -hmm. um i had sort of a lightning bolt moment in uh, right around i would say 2008 maybe with uh, another wine that was just absolutely fantastic and it just really kind of opened my eyes to the concept that Oregon really should have the potential for great Chardonnay. There was one acre planted at Whistling Ridge that was being, at that point, it was going to another winemaker. I had to wait for him to get to decide not to use the fruit, which is kind of, a lot of the time that's how you evolve up. Mm -hmm. um, in 2010, he was kind enough to get cold feet and step aside. <laughs> so, and we never have looked back. It was kind of sad. I don't, I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to throw him under the bus, but he was literally blending the fruit with Washington grapes in order to make a wine that was sort of bigger, burlier, because I think that's what people's belief that Chardonnay should be was still sort of caught in that. Mm -hmm. and Whistling Ridge, to me, one of the most remarkable sites for Chardonnay in the Valley. I, would, I have five sites that I think are sort of elite sites. There's a lot more that I haven't tried, so I certainly wouldn't suggest that well, my opinion is somehow correct. It's just what I've tried. Mm -hmm. But there's very little doubt that we can produce wines that are the equal of, you know, whether it's Merceau, Pulini, those kinds of communes are, mm -hmm. are what we're already doing here. Did you have kind of a winemaking philosophy in mind as you got started? Did you have something you were intending for your wines to, to to be like, to evoke in people? Did you have kind of a, uh, yeah. an intended result? Uh, definitely, I mean, uh, my dad used to collect old cars. And for me, I think the European wines were the ones that I loved. Mm -hmm. And those, that's where, uh, there's a guy named Brian Shuttleworth in the cellar door in Portland, and he turned me on to an array of the great European producers that were not the fancy pants producers, not Ecam, not Margot, but people who were sort of the craft-oriented, traditional, the things that really spoke of the culture of the region and the sites themselves, mm -hmm. and the clean lines very precise wines, really well executed. And so for me, that was definitely the philosophy. I never aspired to California. I had a period where I drank a lot of California wine. I enjoyed the heck out of it. But I didn't, the richer, fuller, kind of look at me style wasn't a long-term interest. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, what I found is that those were wines I enjoyed a glass of rather than wanting to put into my cellar. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, 
for me, the, that philosophy was early on. And to be fair, I realized pretty quickly that the most important philosophy for me was the French saying that tradition is an experiment that worked. That you, you do want to experiment. Oregon is not Burgundy, but if you want to see the ways to make, people weren't making wine and putting them into barrels. 300 years ago because it's what they had. Like they had amphora long before that. Barrels in Burgundy are there because they work mm -hmm. and they work in a way that almost nothing else does. Uh, they're remarkably well shaped. People often ask me about my chemistry background and I think that it's funny because over the years that I've been doing this, it's my belief that physics is far more important. Hmm. That chemistry is following chemical equations that are all going to walk down the path that they always go down. If you look at chemistry, it's a, it's a plus B equals C, and it doesn't change from that. Physics is an extraordinarily varied and complex process where you look at changes in thermal temperature will have dramatic impacts in the wines. The motion of the wine as it goes through fermentation within the vessel that it's fermented in is a tremendous impact on the outcome of the wine, and it's extraordinarily complex and varied. So the more that you can sort of wrap your head around those particular dynamics, I think that's where you find the elevation between good and great in winemaking. Certainly, I would even say the height of the roof that you're trying to ferment under. Something people don't often think about, but if you're trying to use the natural, you know, heat retention that you get from fermentation, it explains why caves are a very popular place to mm -hmm. produce wine in Europe. Mm -hmm. So they're actually not really some dank, stanky place. What they really are is an almost optimal place for both fermenting and then storage throughout the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. And that would give any place that has natural cave formation a huge advantage four or five hundred years ago when they didn't have refrigeration and you didn't have all of the tools that we have now. So, so we read that you consider yourself an, an indie winemaker. So tell me what you mean by tell me what you mean by that. <laughs> That's years and years and years ago. And that was to get into the indie wine fest. So early on you're sort of like, well, I'll be whatever you want me to be in order if you'll just take the wines. I think as you get further on, I would say that I'm much more of a classicist. And I would say that I'm part of a group called the Deep Roots Coalition. Mm -hmm. It's a group that's committed to dry farming. Much like biodynamics, I would say that while you can look at biodynamics and, and espouse that it is the way to go, my feeling is that if you look at the type of people that are inclined to put themselves into the rigors of biodynamics, you're also going to find people who are connected to their wines in a way that not everyone is, and mm -hmm. that that's part of what makes those types of wines better. Um, I would say that I feel a bit the same with it. I believe very, very much in dry farming. I think that if you care about terroir, that is, uh, you simply cannot change that aspect of it. You have to believe in the grapes. You have to let them suffer a bit. Uh, I do think that dry farming is an act of understanding that the grapes are more important than the farmer. Mm -hmm. Great wine is made by the vineyard. We always say great wine is made in the vineyard. There's no doubt. But to me, it's great wine is made by the vineyard. And farming follows the same philosophy of the seller. There is talent, technique, but you need to make sure that you're not interceding when you don't need to. And mm -hmm. dry farming is a good way to sort of handcuff yourself to learn that the grapes are far tougher often than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. We often want to see plants that look extraordinarily healthy. And I think what you need to look at is, are the wines great? Mm -hmm. And if the plants are suffering, you should consider that marathon runners run 16, 17 mile runs before they go out and do 26. They don't look fresh at the end of that. <laughs> but they're going to be able to run further. If you let a marathon runner or someone who's training for it run eight miles and then say, well, you look tired, so here, you know, we're going to give you a ride to the end of your run, they're not going to ever be able to get to 26 miles. So you have to be able to look at your grapes and say, like, that's just a little too bad for them. They're going to have to, you know, it'll make them stronger next year. And I think that's hard for a lot of farmers. Mm -hmm. That's a, there's your first tangent. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, following on that, you mentioned all the different relationships you have with various vineyards and various growers. So how do you kind of find people who believe that with you and, and, and kind of follow through with it? Deep Roots Coalition was a big part of it. I'd also say that randomly enough, I've come to believe in size of production. Hmm. Um, I mean, no disrespect, there are some really good larger producers. I think the Campbell family does a remarkable job at Elk Cove, um, but it's a logistical business. And I think for the artistic side of Pinot Noir, the, it becomes very hard to get over a certain quantity of cases or tons and actually follow in a very, the sort of traditional detailed, what I would call the, you know, we're all caught between sort of macro wineries and na the natural guys these days. And I think what we've lost is that there's a craft that's basically related to, I'm a size that I can actually handle all of the wines, Megan, and I do all of the winemaking here. We have another friend who comes down and helps out. I don't have to have interns that don't really know what they're doing. And that's no disparagement to those people. I was that person. Like, I'm the first person to say that. There's been plenty of time where I didn't know what I was doing. But that changes as you practice and you practice and you practice. And so the ability for us to see and do everything each time, like it is that sort of repetition. Um, you learn through doing. And, and I, honestly, I'm a real believer that while theory is nice and you shouldn't disregard it, that practice is far more important. The, there was a study done on a pottery class where they had half the students produce, their grade was based solely on volume, the number of pieces you did. And the other half of the class was based solely upon one perfect piece. You were graded on the quality of that piece. All of the best pottery came out of the volume side of the class all of it because as they were throwing things out and doing it they learned things where the people who were stuck with only one everything was mental and you didn't have the actual practice so what you got in the end was sort of ideas that didn't have the refinement of seeing it in the real world mm -hmm. and I think with winemaking that's the key you have to stick your face in it um, I had a friend once who offered to make me a hydraulic punch down tool all the over and I finally was just like this is not what I want you're you're you're, you're trying to take me away from the ferment like <laughs> go away <laughs> Tell me about sort of the, the process for you of learning the hands-on part of winemaking, uh, coming into it the way you did. Tell me about sort of the things maybe that caught you by surprise and the things that were sort of the, the, the lessons you kind of learned along the way. Were there, there things that caught you totally off guard? Totally. I mean, I came out of it. I was running one of the best lists in Portland. I'm a studier. Uh, I certainly felt that I was quite knowledgeable about wine. I got into production and found out that I knew almost nothing and that the vast majority of things, even in production, that we think uh, there's often a counterintuitive approach to the way everybody thinks things should be done that can get you to a place that is, uh, that you have to mix it, like to recognize in production, like you're, it's, it's not about the story. That happens, that transition is what you know, people get told. And for me, I heard all kinds of stories and then to actually see the process, it was sort of, it was a very eye-opening thing to recognize that there were assumptions that I made that were, the number one assumption I think people make is that what's in that bottle has worked out, that it should have gone that way. And that if you just sort of were like, you know, I have X, I do X, B, C, whatever, here's my order, these are all the, the things that are fashionable mm -hmm. right now then that's, and what I learned, I think, is like the, the more of a poet you want to be, the better mechanic you better be, because if you're going to let it all hang out, it's mother nature, and shit will go wrong. <laughs> and at that point, you need to figure out how to dig yourself out of a hole. And I think that understanding and then being able to look at it and understand what my investment had been in something that I was sort of sitting there and watching it, whether it was working out or not. I learned that 
that it's a very, very different process than we think. And to be fair, I fell in love with the process. It's a much more magical process than I ever could have imagined. We spend so much time talking magic and then you actually get to see it happening in front of you and you realize like here's literally a ton of fruit that without any real action on my part will go ahead and get itself the vast majority of the way to an extraordinarily beautiful beverage through not, you know, I, I have a friend who's in tech and he's like three times now, he makes great money, but three times he's almost been redundant. And at some point I'm like, well, nobody can do fermentation differently. Like mm -hmm. it is what it is. So you, it's, we're all just managers and it gives you a, a certain job security, which is great. I like that. So tell me about this place here, how you got here and, and kind of the founding of, Good, of, of, of Goodfellow Family Cellars, the, the, the sort of the name change and, and how we came to be here today. Yeah, it's funny, I guess so. So we started off as Matella Wines and that partly, I didn't really want to put my name on the bottle. I don't think that that was ever a goal for me. Um, and Matello loosely translates as a little foolish, which seemed really appropriate at the time. Uh, we were jumping in eyes wide, shut as it were uh, the it, it, you know it, it was literally stepping off the edge of a cliff and I, my first mental thing with Matello was that we would do four years and that I would if I lost my money in each of the four years that would be the cost of my education mm -hmm. uh, fortunately that didn't happen but it was always bootstrapped up the old truism that you the way to make a small fortune in the wine industry is start with a big one is not incorrect uh, everybody does it that way you just either have a fortune of sweat equity or a fortune of money you know I unfortunately was in the first camp <laughs> and I say unfortunately but not really fortunately was in the first camp not having any money also meant that I never had enough rope to hang myself and I would also say that for me one of the most important things in the winery and the growth and the ability for it to be successful was for me to not be able to lose money so I had to alter course if something didn't work on the first time. Like, and that may, meant like we get very attached to what we believe the wine should be like or what the wine industry should be for us. And, and if you have revenue, you have the ability to continue down a wrong path further. Yeah. And that's not, so for me, I had the very good fortune of like having to streamline it fairly quickly. Um, we did the name change. The main reasons for that, oddly enough, were that in a, just to be honest, since this is archiving, um, Matello, Matteo is a confusion and that people with, with the number of wines out there to choose from, the, you don't want an uninitiated consumer to look at your wine and anything that will get them to take their hand off that bottle and put it on the next one you have to avoid. Hmm. And uh, so from that standpoint, I, while I liked the name and I liked the icon of the gesture, I just recognized that we weren't telling people what was in the bottle correctly. We weren't, we weren't communicating to them. We were communicating something that I enjoyed. And so with Goodfellow, we connected to them that it is a personal project hmm. that, and that it is much like the European wineries that I admired, that it's a, a smaller craft winery that is owned and operated by the winemaking team. Um, the, we moved solely to the vineyards because that is what mattered. When I first started out, we didn't have the great quantity from any of the vineyards to really do a single vineyard, so mm -hmm. I was doing blends. And I won't argue that I do feel that you can produce, at times, superior wines that way. But what you don't get is the most remarkable story. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of openly joke that I would like my 
career, the wines as people look at them to be like the Coen Brothers movies where you have uh, an array of unique, interesting movies as opposed to necessarily the Michael Bay style of grandiose movies. Um, within that, that means sort of being true to the vineyard. So in our change, we moved away completely from uh, non-vineyard-based wines. Mm -hmm. Other, the only terroir-based wines really that we have at this point are either AVA or, or there is a Willamette Valley. And partly Willamette Valley is also a terroir that we have to communicate. People know Burgundy before they know Chambol Musigny. Sure. Yeah. So in addition, obviously, to making your own wine, you've made wine for a number of other vineyards, places over the years. Tell me about how you kind of, those relationships are built and then the, uh, how you sort of manage your winemaking style with the wishes of the people you're making wine for. Uh, yeah, you know, it's neat. I mean, the winery is always and continues to be a, a, you know, you're building the bridge as you walk across it. I think first generation wineries are almost always that way to some extent. Um, you know, I, I, there's a, a reference to vanity projects, but I would tell people openly that I'm just an underfunded vanity project. <laughs> uh, making wine for other people is a, it's, it's hard and it's not that hard. Um, Making wine for them according to their wishes, for the most part with growers, if you make something that they really like, you're fine. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the easiest way. I think that people, as long as they know that you're committed, I also would say that growers, even more so than producers, when I talked about what I learned when I came from being a wine buyer to being a producer, mm -hmm. growers already know that lesson, that things don't work out the way that you want to all the time, that you have to be the concept that you go around and, you know, this is a business. Like for people who are charging $350 a bottle in Napa and micromanage every aspect of it, <clears throat> that's not really wine to me. I, I, honestly, I don't mean any disrespect to them, but I'm not, I have zero interest in drinking that kind of stuff because to me, it's like going to, like, it's like being someone who wants to get out into nature and see the wild animals and winding up stuck at a rodeo. And uh, that's just kind of, for me, the growers that we deal with all tend to be people who are in some similar way to where my winery was. Mm -hmm. And over the years, there are people that I see their commitment to quality they see our commitment to quality. I've had a hard time continuing with vineyards where there's transition between the farmers, partly because for me, the personality of the grower becomes so intrinsically connected to the terroir. Uh, we really focus on not working. I shouldn't say not working. I mean, again, no disrespect to vineyard management companies, but we really focus on working with farmers who are doing their own farming. Mm -hmm. um, primarily, I think, because they're, while not necessarily the smartest people in the world in terms of grape farming, and they are all practiced. I don't work with anybody who's a dummy. But vineyard management companies have access to lots of tools and information. So do most of the growers around here. And they are in their own vines all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, they're committed in a way that I don't think I can hire a vineyard management company that has the same commitment to the vineyard that you get from Dick and Patricia at Whistling Ridge or Paul Durant up at Durant. Uh, they're owners. And so that makes a difference. I think in terms of making wine for them, the biggest thing was always being connected to the vineyard, like mm -hmm. going out and being, my feeling is that I can't add it. We try to walk a very fine line. I'm not looking to elevate fruit to the level where it becomes a safety net. And I'm not looking to avoid tannin to the point where it's nowhere, it's inoffensive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And within that, you have to find, I believe that the tannins eventually are the things that form the tertiary qualities that make great old bottles. 
I think fruit for the most part and the celery evolves into smoother, nice, you know, whatever, but not terribly amazing. And when I taste old Burgundy, you know, you look at Bon Mars produced arguably the best wine of my life. When young, that wine will rip your head off with the tannins. So I feel those tannins are useful, not useful, they're integral to the evolution of non-fruit qualities that really drive what is great wine. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, you know, we've had to make sure that we're as closely connected to both the vintage, the farmer, what they're doing, making small corrections. Because again, the farmer is part of the terroir. If I want to be someone who preserves the terroir, then I can't go through and tell them how they should farm everything. Uh, part of it is adjusting my winemaking to their farming style. And that, in general, has a side benefit of endearing you to the person that you're making wine for <laughs> they generally like the fact that you're interested in what they're doing mm -hmm. and not trying to tell them how to manage their vineyard mm -hmm. um, so that's that's a big part of that the second was that we've always worked with people that had that sort of focus on the more european style of wine ken durant was open about the fact that what he liked was tended to be things that were balanced that he preferred picking in october to the harvest where you pick in september uh, so it was an easy thing to look at and paul definitely is I think the benefit there is that Paul worked with Ken for a number of years, and by the time that Paul was really taking on the, I mean, he's a great guy, uh, and I'm not saying that because I'm on camera, uh, <laughs> but on top of that, he just, he had seen some of the wines aging, mm -hmm. and then realized that with what we were giving them for their wine, sometimes he had to just sit on for a little bit, but that the end result would be that after a few years, you'd be able to put out something that was more unique. Uh, so I'm curious. Um one of the things we, we hear a lot when we talk about Oregon wine uh, is sort of the development of the vineyard over the years in terms of like the, the technology and the knowledge going into vineyards now. So tell me about, about your experience with vineyards over the years and what you've seen change in like vineyard practices and maybe in, in the fruit coming out of them. Uh, the biggest changes have been vine age. I think it, part of what you look at vineyard management, you have to recognize that everything that we do is in reaction to what's going on around us in the industry and that that's changed fundamentally over the years. Uh, I would say you arm yourself for the terrain that you're going to fight the battle on. You don't, you, it's, it's not a recipe. So within that, I think in the early days you look at what stimulated people. One, you had young vines mm -hmm. and so converse and you had young winemakers mm -hmm. and I don't mean no disrespect again like these are Stephen Carey, Russ Rainey, John Paul like everybody who was in that first wave the Adelsheims, David Lett obviously you know they had no background knowledge to work with and so you're basically working through a lot of stuff but you're also just trying anything that works you're you know you find something that works in another country you apply it here mm -hmm. like all of those things go and then people have the success that they and then also they have to sell it mm -hmm. and then so you have to go out into a marketplace that for the early guys was just brutal <laughs> uh, if there's anything anybody ever gets out of this for me it's the understanding that you have to have it's so easy comparatively as competitive and as as crowded as there might you know with the growth in the industry right now as it might feel it's nothing compared to what they had to do mm -hmm. um, uh, we started producing Willamette Valley Syrah and it was an education for me to recognize what trying to take something into the marketplace that no one heard of or even really believed would work mm -hmm. was it was a completely different world and so you realized very quickly that quality didn't matter like you know people tend to drink things they know are good and mm -hmm. so uh, in the early days I think there was an aspiration to anything that could not only would work in the vineyard because you didn't know what wasn't but also things that would 
work in the sales market. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things we need to give David Lett a huge thank you for is like he was stubborn enough that in 40 years he never changed what he did. As you saw the sort of impact of critics, you know, reviewers and what their scores would do for wines, David continued to produce what he believed would be wines that would be equal to the great wines. And that he, again, not dissimilar from what I espoused earlier, that that meant less new wood or less fruit, things that were sort of ethereal and, and beautiful and that had the opportunity to evolve into something amazing rather than something where you were forcing it. But the vast majority, I think, of people looking for fruit, you know, you can take the Gary Anders side of it. They were looking for 95 points for a bit and that was really the driver. And at the point you're at now, I think in terms of vineyard management, you have a lot of things that people believe, but in the end you have vine age. I've come to believe that you know we see by working with different growers, there isn't as much of the group think where everyone kind of, you know, no one wants to be seen as wrong. Mm -hmm. And so everybody tends to do what they know will work, even if, you know, and then we espouse that it's the greatest way. And then once enough people, the best example, Richard Sherman, cornerback for the Seattle Seahawks, widely thought of as one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. The first person that said that, Richard Sherman. <laughs> he did it after a win in the playoffs and he walked up and he yelled that he was the best quarter quarterback in the NFL. That doesn't actually make him that, but the media grabbed onto it and the next thing you know, like everybody, that's just became sort of attached to his name. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that as a person who wants to make wine, he says you have to be careful of where something is true or where something is actually just what everybody thinks. Mm -hmm. Like that. It's a more complicated difference. I'm not implying that everybody's wrong either, just that sometimes you have to go out and fish outside. So when it comes to vineyard management technique right now, I think that there's a lot of concepts that people put out there. Like I don't tell people, like clones, if you want to talk about clones, that's in my opinion not dissimilar from peeing into the wind. It's going to be bad at some point. Um, the, everyone is a Dijon clones for Chardonnay and then you turn around and you've got, you know, arguably some fantastic Chardonnay from Jason Led at Irie, Jimmy Marsh is killing it with old vine stuff from Marsh. Uh, I don't see John Paul, all of the, you know, Clos Electrique, which hard for me to say that there's a better Chardonnay wine than that. Uh, old vine when you look at the high wire from Bethel Heights. So I think that one of the things that it's best to do is for us we tend to focus on the dynamics of the vineyard and then try to farm to it. I do, and this is just for us, we do work in sort of I would say a counterintuitive way. I don't want to coddle the vines. We are no-till because we don't have as rocky a soil here with the competition from the plants tends to keep the vigor down. Uh, we're not focused on low yields. We're focused on matching yields according to our best guess as to what mother nature is giving us. You know, 14 and 15 were easy vintages to see that they were gonna be hot. So there's no point in my opinion for taking off fruit. And we harvested close to four tons an acre and made, you know, arguably some very, very good wines. Uh, wines that I have no issue with putting into, you know, looking at them in, as part of our peer group. Uh, so we try not to get caught up into what's right and wrong and really keep the farming more situational. You talked earlier about the sort of crowded marketplace uh, you're in now. Uh, talk about some of the, the changes you've seen in the industry in addition to just pure size. What, what else you've seen change in the Oregon wine industry since you became a part of it? Honestly, the single biggest change is the margin for error. Um, when I started out, wine sales were 
not that hard in some ways because you had you were you were gaining enough people that uh, we didn't have the there was I think a few years where you could go do a tasting at Lantern Nelson and people would walk out with like you'd take ten cases in and leave with nothing. Um, nowadays, and I think for many people, you know, there's so many places to go over the Memorial Day and Thanksgiving weekends uh, that you know people are buying threes and sixes sometimes a case, but oftentimes they're buying six bottles from you and six bottles from six of your friends mm -hmm. and I think that's great because we need that like it can't be uh, wineries need to think of themselves regionally mm -hmm. I, if I could pass anything to everybody else it's that that no one operates independently we all may want to be the most successful winery but we're only successful as a group um, there's no example around the world outside of maybe maybe Vegathothelia that you know where you have an individual winery is the only port, part of the region um, for me, I think that the change, though, is that when I started and I was, it was more rudimentary winemaking, and I definitely uh, learned a lot of things on the way, and we've definitely tried some very experimental options. Uh, if you had something that wasn't great, you know, or that wasn't, there's just, it, there's no, it needs to, it needs to taste good out of the gate now and have all of the additional things. You're playing at an elite level. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I started, I would joke that it was like a really good junior college to go play basketball at. Like if you could be a good player, but you didn't have to be a great player. And nowadays, I, you know, if you, part of the reason I think you see people looking at other varietals as an option in the Valley. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity for mm -hmm. other things. Um, but one of the main reasons is just simply that establishing Pinot Noir <laughs> is really hard to do now. Um, so it's it's definitely something that I think for us we're very cognizant. It's good, I think, because it also means uh, you don't want to turn everyone into people who are playing it safe all the time. And if I had one negative to say about the Valley right now for winemaking, it's that there's too many wines that lack the acidity to be refreshing. And that's my opinion, it's not a personal thing, but I, it's, it is where I feel like it's easy to forget that the acidity and a one ounce taste can be aggressive in a glass, it's refreshing. Mm -hmm. And that that's the nature of what wine has always been, that wine needs to be vinous, not fruit-based. Um, it's, it's something that to me, I think, also, the, if, even if you're willing to, the flaws, <laughs> another favorite winemaker of mine says the kiss of corruption is what you need in order for great wine. For me, I think that there is, there needs to be, it, the closer the winemaking or the safer it gets, the more consistent it gets, the more you look like any other place. Mm -hmm. So as we are in a position where you have a need for sort of an elite level of winemaking, then you also can't have the failure of courage to produce things that are individual and that's a really hard place to be and it isn't one that it's certainly achievable here because I think the vineyards give you that opportunity but it requires a lot of diligence. You mentioned some of the experimental work you've done here. Give, give me an example of something you've done that you've been excited about or something you're hoping to do that you're excited about. Oh, we've done a few things over the years. I mean, uh, if you're looking, we're standing in front of 500 liter puncheons instead of bariques. For me, I think that the move up, we do the larger portion of our élevage for Pinot Noir and puncheon primarily because I feel that in Burgundy, there's an intensity of the, the sort of mineral nature of the wines, whereas here I think we do have a balance of fruit, and I think for them, the barrique, uh, they're a leaner, harder 
style in the beginning, Oregon can give you more fruit in the early stages. And I think that the punchins are slightly more austere. They're a little bit more reductive. They evolve a little bit more slowly. And they also tend to influence a little bit less with the wood. Um, I think that for me early on, I realized that I really disliked the new, the brand new barrels, and that our new barrels were mostly an opportunity to get to one and two fills. Uh, as we punchins really ameliorate that, the newer ones are often they're easily folded into some of our higher end cuvées. Uh, with Barriques, the exception to that rule was 2007 the first exception and there it was something it was a vintage where the new wood was necessary uh, it really was a vintage that woke me up to the concept that bigger wines need less new wood not more uh, for Pinot Noir at least that, the, that you wanted to counterbalance your use of barrique and punch and to understand that like in cooler vintages in 10 we went up in new wood in nine we went with zero new wood in the cellar i didn't buy any barrels uh or we didn't use any of the ones that we bought the nature of of that i think was was a part of it we elevated it with the white varietals moving to both 820 liter fooders and then also shifting acacia in with all the aromatic varietals um, those have all been things that worked out and then the probably the biggest thing too for us is the length of time in elevage where a lot of what we're doing these days is you're on the skins and stems for you know anywhere between 30 and 45 days so and that's not unheard of it's also not uncommon around the world there's a we just kind of have stretched I don't know that there's a whole lot that we do that's really all that original um, other than or that is it's almost all something that if you search around you can find somebody else that's been doing it so what about as you look into the future for a good fellow family sellers what are you hoping to achieve say as you look a decade down the road retirement no <laughs> uh, um i i would you know the only i guess I, my feeling is that we we've started doing tastings for sommeliers and buyers in portland where we're putting our wines in with with burgundy in the tasting and i mm -hmm. feel like the goal for me originally was to start producing wines that were comparable to what I consider to be the top quality Premier Cru producers. And I feel that over the last three to four years with the tastings, we've achieved that. Um, that really leaves that the next goal then is to push up beyond Premier Cru into what we would consider to be Grand Cru producers. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that trying to be arrogant, I just feel like what we've seen is that particularly with communes like Bolnay, uh, Nui Saint George, and even in Jevry, even with top producers, we can produce wines here that have a similar an Oregon terroir for sure, mm -hmm. but that have the same structure, acid, and the same quality denseness of fruit. Um, moving into who knows what it will take, you know, I mean, there's the older vines, I think, make a huge difference. There's obviously the aspect of saying, like, do we know what's Grand Cru and Premier Cru over here? I have no, if, I'm, if 10 years from now we're not at Grand Cru, I won't cry. We've done pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I drink a more Premier Cru Burgundy than I do Grand Cru, <laughs> so I still enjoy it pretty well. Um, that said, I just think that that's the natural thing to do. And I think with us, I think there will be very little difficulty establishing that the Willamette Valley is the premier producer for Chardonnay uh, of a European style outside of Burgundy or even possibly with them. Mm -hmm. I don't, I do feel that there's much more there is a very comparable quality between what's being done in the valley here and what is being produced over there. You mentioned trying to 
start Willamette Valley Syrah. Uh, are you, is there anything else you know, you're trying outside of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that you're thinking about down the road? Oh, we monkey around with stuff all the time, but uh, if I'm on it, like if you're talking about like, what do I want to be remembered for? It's really site definition. Like the, for us, vineyard is everything. We'd like to illustrate that what makes Whistling Ridge unique is unique to that site. It's not about my technique. We want to illustrate the confluence of breeze, soil depth, exposure to sun, the contours that create that. And if you look at, you know, like the last, I'm not a score driven person, but I thought it was interesting that the estate Patricia Green wines, the Beaufort wines and Whistling Ridge, which are all literally right next to each other in a block, everything that Josh Reynolds reviewed was between 93 and 96 points. So that is to me when you start talking about like codifying Oregon at some point it's hard not to look at that and say like this is it it is at the very least a high quality premier crew spot mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I'm sure that Mike and Jim would argue that it's probably grind crew I'm not gonna I mean I think we have to go out and prove that in the wines mm -hmm. uh, and but I think that's a process that's in place and I think then in terms of outside of that like Oregon is a bit of a garden of Eden I, there's a little bit of Cab Franc Cabernet that was originally planted at Whistling Ridge that most of it went down to Phylloxera. There's a few rogue plants that have stuck around and we started picking it independently and doing that. And it's hard not to, and I'd hate to say also benefiting from my having a few bottles of really, really amazing Loire Valley Cab Franc over the past few years. I've had producers I've always really liked, but we've had some just absolutely dynamite bottles. Um, and I do think that Cab Franc has a position here. I'm super high on Blau Francish, although I think that much like Syrah, like that's it's something for you should have a spot for it in your tasting room. <laughs> I don't know how well it's going to do outside of that, um, but it does make I, what Johan Dan Rinke at Johan is doing with Blau Francish is fantastic, and that it is a terroir-driven expression of it, which is I think the most exciting thing for me. And then whites are limitless here. I've had phenomenal Milan de Bourgogne. Pinot Gris, I think some people here like to hate on Pinot Gris. That's probably something that they're just not really that great at producing it. Um, and that's really probably the bigger problem. Uh, Chardonnay is a great grape here, maybe greater than Pinot Gris, but arguably they're both still a place for each of them. Riesling is one of my favorite grapes and Shannon Blanc is one of my favorite grapes and I think we'll see some Shannon come back into the valley. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's already tremendous Riesling being produced here. Mm -hmm. So, and those are things that we play around with in small amounts. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, part of what you do is you like to have fun. Part of it is we look at wine as like an album collection. I just don't think there is a best. And if there was, I still don't want to drink it every night. Um, it'll be interesting to see how bubbles work out here in terms of Andrew Davis starting Radiant Sparkling Wine Company is I think one of the biggest that's a sea change for Oregon. Mm -hmm. so I think Andrew will benefit from it, but I also think that him doing that is something that opens up the ability of the region to add a layer that, you know, people don't necessarily think about Cremant de Bourgogne when they're talking about Burgundy, but it's a, an absolutely integral part of what's happening over there. And in particular, you know, it's easy to forget that every year, every vintage remark, regardless of how the vintage comes out, you have to use all the fruit. And so the more, it's easy to say, like, you know, still Pinot Noir from, you know, Mazi Chambertin is the only thing you should do with it. But if you have a, <laughs> depending on the year, you may need to work a different route. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's Mother Nature here is capricious without being catastrophic so far. <laughs> but 
your job as a winemaker and a vineyard owner is to expect the unexpected. What about as you look uh, into the future for Oregon then, kind of banking off of that, as you look 10 years down the road, what do you see the Oregon wine industry becoming in that time? I don't know. I think we're at a crossroads. Uh, a lot of it, I think, will depend upon whether or not people really get that statement about that we're a region. If everybody wants to be me, 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 then, you know, and I, you know, you're at that point where the, the early guys hung together because they didn't have any other choice. You know, and that's really how it was. Mm -hmm. Like, they, there was, it was them against the world. And I think that Oregon is on the map now, and it's a little bit like, you know, having to... I'm interested to see how, as an industry, we handle success. Um, there is a lot of buying in now from, you know, there's different things. There's, it's all over the board. Like, you know, Kendall Jackson is the largest landholder here. So, and to be fair, They've acted like Oregonians. Mm -hmm. So I think in that way, like they've been, it's been a really nice thing to see. Uh, I think, you know, you look at some of the French properties that are coming over. And the biggest question is just what to make sure that people remember that like the region is what matters. Like with that, individual wines are not important. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for someone who is entering the Oregon wine industry today? Don't do it. I'm not saying that. One, if you look around, like this is archival, so let's be honest, because it should be. Uh, there's more fruit planted than there is winery space, really. There are people who are not selling their fruit, and that's, so that's a bad time to plant. Mm -hmm. And if you, that, not to say that won't change, and I'm not saying it's a bad time to buy land, but I am saying it's a bad time to plant fruit. Uh, in terms of getting into the industry, we've been adding two wineries a month for years and years and years. Like I started as under someone else's license. Um, when I got my license, it was 2010, my TTB basic mm -hmm. permit, and the reality of that was that, you know, I was like the 256th winery. So, it's when you look at how much, the only answer is like, no matter how attractive it may be seen, like there's a lot of enthusiasm for Oregon wine out there. There is twice as much enthusiasm for being in the industry, <laughs> and that that is not a bad thing, oh. <laughs> but it does mean that it's a very tight, like you have no margin for error, mm -hmm. and if you're if you don't how do, you, how do you do something that's a very complicated thing without making mistakes? I don't get that. So, you know, to me, if you want to, you know, buy, invest in a winery that someone else is already running, that's great. But if you're talking about coming in and starting, like, the, the, um, in France, they've instituted, and in places in Europe, that in order to plant a new vineyard, you have to take an old one out. It is time for us to start looking at those kinds of concepts here. Uh, when I grew up, it was Christmas trees, and it was feast or famine. You know, if you, if you plant, then no one else has planted, you do really well. But then everybody else plants Christmas trees, too, because there's a real demand for it. But then they all mature at the same time, and the market desire has not changed that significantly. Mm -hmm. So suddenly what you have is a bunch of people then who don't actually, you know, and it becomes this thing where uh, there's an overall great feeling about getting a Christmas tree every year, but the people who are actually doing it for a living are all suffering. And I think, for me, I think that's the only issue with wine is like, if you want to do it, like, just think twice. Mm -hmm. Make sure that the numbers actually pencil out, not that you just want to do it. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Questions. Okay, that's all the questions that I have okay. for you. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we should have covered that we didn't? I have an open microphone here at the end, so final thoughts? No, I think 
uh, it'll be interesting to see. I hope that people understand, like, part of our process is we use a lot of stems, and that part of other people, like, I like Aaron Nuccio's wines at Evesham Wood, and he's a D-stem guy, and I think that the nature is that wine should be enjoyed, and that there's, uh, there's no right or wrong way, mm -hmm. so. Appreciate that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your yeah. time today, for your answers, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.